0: Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm Gregory Haddock, and this is Living on a Prairie. That's right. It's a story all about America's great grasslands and how important they are to the ecosystem as a whole. I know, if you're anything like me, you're kind of a little bit surprised to hear that. But it's actually very, very true. Now, when we're talking about the grasslands and the animals that are on it, it's kind of like two schools of thought, right? You've got the Bill Murray from Caddyshack school, just something like this. License to kill gophers by the government of the United Nations. Man, free to kill gophers at will. To kill, you must know your enemy. In this case, my enemy is a varmint. And a varmint will never quit, ever. They like to be at calm. Varmint calm. So what you gotta do, you gotta fall back, superior firepower, and superior intelligence. And that's how she wrote. And that's actually about Gophers, but you get the idea, it's the same situation. And then you kind of have this uh, Animaniacs, Elmira perspective, right? And that's like this.
1: Here, squirrely, Whirly, look what I have for you.
0: Come on, little Squirrely, take the nice peanut. Ooh, now I have a cute little Squirrely really do pet and love and charge and squeeze. I'll take you home and lock you in a nice little cage and never, never,
1: ever let you out except to pet you and love you and hug you and squeeze you all up. <laughs> Won't that be fun?
0: Huh? But the truth is, when we're talking about things like the black-tailed prairie dog, it's actually way more complicated to the ecosystem than one might have imagined. And I'm hoping that this discussion with Deanna Meyer of Prairie Protection Colorado gets right at that and gives us all a better perspective on something that I know a lot of you are thinking right now is, why of all the animals on planet Earth that you could be talking about, are you talking about prairie dogs? They're literally everywhere. Well, I know that Deanna has the answers for you, so stay tuned and check it out.
1: I'm Deanna Meyer, and I'm the executive director of Prairie Protection Colorado and the president of uh, Prairie Protection, both the C3 and C4 nonprofit organizations. Protecting prairie ecosystems, which are in rapid decline. In fact, there's less than one percent left of our grasslands in North America, and also less than one percent of the prairie dogs. And our focus is really on the prairie dog because they are rapidly declining. They're being annihilated up and down the front range, and people don't. They're very polarized. So either people hate them or people love them, and. They're just a perfect illustration of what's happening to our planet on a global scale, um, environmentally. And every one of us can see still up and down the front range, the devastation of the loss of prairie dog communities and the poisoning that happens. So it's very visible and it's a very visible representation kind of of what our colonization has done across the entire continent.
0: What brought Deanna Meyer to my attention was the efforts that she went through to relocate hundreds of prairie dogs, From what she said was seven or 8,000 from an area right in the middle of Castle Rock, Colorado. The area had been known to be this oasis, if you will, for so many prairie dogs that had been there for such a long time. That is until the $177 million, 1 million square foot promenade shopping mall at Castle Rock broke ground.
1: On to, I mean, they make it – extra. you have to fill out a 12-page application. Um, I tried to get some prairie dogs up here. They put me through a 50-day process of just stringing me along, and then they said no. Um, and they make it – so even if you're a private landowner that wants prairie dogs on your land, where clearly they would never affect your neighbors because they're locked in here, uh, they don't care. And then they pretend to say, "Well, we don't think they do well out here." It's like, "Well, this colony's been out here for three years, and they're doing just—they're doing better every year." But they don't want to hear that. Um, they make it very hard. This whole statewide belief in prairie dogs being this disgusting, destructive rodent pest. Is, is extraordinarily problematic into saving them, just like with coyotes or, you know, raccoons or anything they deem a uh, nuisance. But prairie dogs probably have some of the worst rap for the problems, for the things we've said here, because you see them. And people look at the land, they're like, oh, that's terrible. Burrows are destructive. It's like, no, you know, that, that subdivision is destructive. But those burrows aren't necessarily destructive. And state law needs to change, too, to where each county, this is what I if I was the queen of all things prairie dogs, I would think every single county in Colorado that has prairie dogs should be setting aside 25% of public lands for prairie preservation of their short grassland prairie because all counties have a large amount of land and they should be able to set aside that. They should set aside that land for exclusive preservation of prairie dogs and then create things that would happen so that we can move them. Another huge problem in Colorado is that they have a – law that they passed called Senate Bill 99-111, and it's one of the Colorado state statutes now. And it basically makes it impossible to move prairie dogs in a relocation across county lines. So we have in Colorado, there's, sorry, there's a a Southern Plains Land Trust, owns a bunch of land in the east, tens of thousands of acres. They originally started purchasing all that land in the hopes that they would be able to move prairie dogs to that land um, and be able to have a, a, a healthy functioning prairie community, but that was in Baca County. So they passed this law 99-111 about that same time so that they could block her efforts to relocate prairie dogs um, across counties, which the law basically says that no county can accept prairie dogs from a different county without county commissioner's approval. So if I was in Douglas County right now and I wanted to move prairie dogs to Boulder County, The commissioners, the three commissioners in Boulder County, would have to agree to allow that move of this destructive rodent pest into their county, whether it's private land, whether it's public land, whether it's a wildlife refuge. um, Like Jefferson County has a wildlife refuge. You cannot move prairie dogs onto it, even if they want them, unless you have the commissioners. Now, all commissioners across the board do not like prairie dogs. Why? Because they're heavily influenced by the ranchers and by the building by by developers so it's a, it's a, it's the barriers into preserving prairie dogs or allowing them to stay in place are pretty difficult in the state and that's another thing that would need to change if people wanted to help uh heal heal the land and heal the prairies i had to fight colorado parks and wildlife really hard a lot of people did to get them up here because they weren't going to allow them to because prairie dogs they say don't exist above 6900 feet we're at 78 here so because we had this huge campaign and we put so much pressure on and they allowed them up here but this is not a prairie this is mountain meadows so um they don't have normally prairie dogs like to see for hundreds of miles or as long far as they can and here they can only see for a little bit and they're locked in because they're not going to run through forests but they don't have anywhere to go they're not going to make it anywhere else so they're not going to affect a bordering landowner um, that's what that, what I mean. So, cause Colorado Parks and Wildlife Base's relocations, they have to check on all your bordering landowners to make sure that nobody has an issue with it. And most of the time a landowner will always have an issue with prairie dogs. So that's another tool that they use to say no to relocations.
0: Now, believe it or not, and this was a in- incredible shock to me, is that prairie dogs are actually a keystone species. Meaning that when you remove them out of an ecosystem that can result in a cataclysmic chain effect.
1: The nice thing about prairie dogs is they're a keystone species. So at least 180 other species have been shown to be dependent upon the prairie dogs. So for those species to thrive and do well, they are absolutely dependent on prairie dog survival. So caring about prairie dogs is was our choice as well because they are keystone. And if you lose the prairie dogs on the prairies, then you lose a host of other different species. And two that really stand out that people do talk about are the black-footed ferret, which are one of the most endangered mammals in North America, critically endangered. Um, And the reason they are is because of prairie dog habitat. Black-footed ferrets depend exclusively on prairie dogs for their food and their shelter. And then you have burrowing owls who are also threatened now. And the reason why they're threatened is because of the loss of prairie dog colonies and communities because they have to live in the burrowing systems with prairie dogs in order to do well. So there's a whole host. I mean, the phrygianus hawk is another animal that's very dependent on them. Eagles are very dependent on prairie dogs. Um, you know, in the win- in the summer, they tend to get fish out of streams, which is also, you know, declining rapidly. And then in the winters, they shift to prairie dog colonies. So there's just coyotes, all different types of mammals and predators and birds and um, reptiles depend on prairie dogs, even spiders a host of different insects and soil. Everything depends on their burrowing systems. There's multiple ways that they do. Um, Some of them are definitely dependent on them for food, like the black-footed ferret, but they're also dependent on them for their shelter. So they need those burrows to exist and to create their own home and have their babies in it. Um, The 180 different species, the hawks, the raptors, all the birds, really depend on them for their food source. Um, when you look at black widow spiders, rattlesnakes, and all different kinds of reptiles and insects, and they depend on their burrows just for shelter and for a home. Burrowing owls depend on them for their shelter. They need those burrows to live and to raise their fledg- their babies. The prairie dog serves all different kinds of functions for that.
0: By now you might be thinking, yeah, that's all fine and well, Miss Meyer, but there are still prairie dogs everywhere. We see them everywhere we go. It's almost impossible to... Well, there's one right there. There's one right there. Everywhere you go, it does not matter. They seem to be everywhere. Even though it appears that way, Deanna says, it doesn't mean that they haven't been reduced to a significant impairing degree.
1: One thing that I always thought was really interesting about prairie dogs is they, well, there used to be about 5 billion prairie dogs in North America. So wherever you saw short grass prairies or even middle mid-grass prairies, you would see big, huge prairie dog colonies. And then... There was a huge poisoning campaign, but during that time in burrows, they create huge burrowing systems, which aerate the soil, and that creates a multitude of different effects in terms of uh, um, supporting native plants and all different kinds of native species and having healthy soil. So now where we see that we've allowed prairie dogs and cow to graze together or the buffalo, they test the grasses in prairie dog colonies, and they're way higher in nutrients because they dig down, and the nutrients and the minerals that are more readily accessible and aerated in the, for the plants to absolutely actually absorb that and bring them to the tips. So even in humans, you can see in our monocultural world that we grow all these crops, and they're pretty much devoid of minerals because we've depleted the soil. But prairie dogs had a huge role in keeping that balance and getting all the minerals up there. So you'll see um, when they test cows... Or buffalo that have grazed on prairie dog communities, that they have, that they eat less because the nutrients fill them up more and they don't need as much, and that they are healthier when they're actually on those ecosystems. But another thing the burrows do is they create condensation, rain, and they recharge groundwater. So when Europeans were going around and mass poisoning prairie dogs up and down all of the prairies in the West, The Hopi and the Navajo both would say are in the indigenous community that they came along that had lived with prairie dogs for a long time. If you kill the prairie dogs, there will be no more rain. And then Bill Mollison, who's a permaculturist, wanted to know, you know, the truth of that, because most of what we've learned from indigenous people has turned out to be scientifically valid and true. So he went and found that the burrowing systems, because they were over such an extended uh, area included with any burrowing animal like the voles or whatever, they would create um, fissures in the land so that the groundwater would actually be pulled up towards the surface with the tides, with the moon. Just like it pulls the oceans, it would pull up the groundwater much more easily through these fissures, and it would create condensation, much like we see our rainforest creating condensation and rain. And then they're showing, too, like you can look at some research where groundwater recharge also, it allows groundwater to reach those aquifers, much more rapidly and easily, which kind of makes sense because they're creating all these burrows, so groundwater gets recharged faster and it doesn't run off. You don't get nearly as much erosion when you have prairie dogs.
0: So quite, quite literally, the way we aerate lawns today just to get that um, you know, the moisture into the soil and allow nutrients to, to get back into the grass the way it should, that's not much different the way prairie dogs do it in natural way for the grasslands.
1: Definitely. Of course, the prairie dogs are much better at it than we ever will be. And, you know, the lawns don't really I, – I mean, lawns serve one purpose, which is our aesthetic, you know, enjoyment. Where down there, you'll sit, your burrows go down 6, 8, 10, 12 feet. Um, They have extensive, you know, chambers in there. They have places where they sleep, where they have their babies, where they eat, where they go to the bathroom. So they have really like this – and they create – their burrows, too, are created so the exact right amount of airflow comes in and out of burrows. So if you're ever looking at a prairie dog colony, you'll see some burrows which look like big volcanoes, and they're all shaped even out here. You can see all these different shapes that they've created, and then you'll see other ones that look totally different. But what they're doing is they're engineering their burrows so that they get the exact right amount of air that flows through there in the right way.
0: So they they, they really are trying to regulate the airflow in the burrows as well.
1: That's right. Yes.
0: So it sounds like, too, one of the the functions of, of prairie dogs is also... Not just to have these, you know, homes for themselves, but they create these subdivisions and then kind of move out and then other animals move in.
1: That's correct. With the burrowing owls, that's one, one example. You know, they go there and they spend time in the vacant burrows, and that's where they have their babies. So they create homes in there. Um, snakes love to live in prairie dog burrows. Prairie dogs, prairie dogs, most of the time, they'll stay in one area and expand, but they will leave burrows intermittently all the time. So they'll decide all this for one reason or another that they're not going to use this burrow. Then there's other ones that they'll use for years and years and years. And their job really is for the aeration of the soil and to provide all these communities for all these other animals. So black widows, the reptiles, there's salamanders, just everything uses these burrows as a way of protection and to survive and to have their babies and to create this huge biodiversity on the landscape. And they're an essential part of that community. And really, without them, you just, everything dries up. So... You know, we, get, we had Lewis and Clark come over and tell stories. Every old expo- explorer that has come across the West has always remarked on prairie dogs. And in fact, they even took one prairie dog back to, I believe it was Lincoln, and he kept that prairie dog as a pet for a while. So the Europeans were kind of fascinated with the prairie dogs because they were everywhere. So Europeans, as always, seem to have been very driven to change the landscape into what they wanted and were used to in Europe. So they wanted to move everything over so they could put cows on and they could create a society and a culture where indigenous people and plants would no longer be able to depend on, say, the buffalo even or, you know, on the native species. But the prairie dog was highly attacked, just like the coyote um, and wolves, because they were competing with their cows and with crops so it's very difficult to have a huge a crop when you have prairie dogs in the middle of the crops because they are burrowing animals. So they will destroy what you're planting because they are busy creating fissures in the earth. So
0: They've got other plants.
1: Right, right. So that was not ever a concern for people who came here. It wasn't cows breaking their leg. It was competition for grass. So they would see prairie dog colonies, and what prairie dogs do is they trim the grass, they keep it super short clipped. They do that for mostly because they have to be able to see any predators, so they want to be able to have a full visual scale, and grass can't be getting in their way, which is interesting too, because in buffalo and everyone, when big huge grass fires come along that's where all the animals go for protection, so they don't burn. They go into the middle of the prairie dog colonies that used to be hundreds of miles big, long and Extended, There was 4 million prairie dogs in one colony in Texas.
0: That seems like a relevant factor for yeah. a state that's struggling with wildfires on a regular basis.
1: Yeah, but back then, the goal was to eliminate animals that would get in the way of progress. So buffaloes were killed because Indians actually were independent and continued to fight white, prog- white people coming into stealing their lands. And they were able to do that because they had food. So the government said if we destroy the food supply and kill all the buffalo, then we'll be able to get them onto reservations and to get them to stop fighting because they won't be able to eat. So they did that with prairie dogs. They wanted to eliminate all of them because they were competing for the land, for the grass. And so they started poisoning them along with the coyotes and the wolves for the same reason. They felt the coyotes were impacting their, their, their cows and they were predating on the babies, which is kind of iffy with the coyotes. Wolves were. Um, So they started using cyanide and strychnine. This was in the mid to late 1800s. And an organization was created in the United States, and it was the Bureau of Biological Surveys, it was called. And then they created a subdivision of that underneath it called the Predator and Rodent Control. And they started going across the prairies and soaking wheat berries or oats in cyanide or strychnine and dumping it all across millions and millions of acres of prairie to kill off all these prairie dogs. And then they would take horses, like in Colorado alone there was like 300,000 bait stations in one year, I believe that was the early 1900s where they'd take horses, inject them all with cyanide and soak their flesh in that they'd kill them. They call them bait stations and they'd throw them all across the prairie so that the predators, the bears, the coyotes and the wolves would come eat all that poison and die. And then they ended up morphing in the sixth, in the 40s and 50s and more in the 60s, environmentalists. We see Rachel Carson. We see all this stuff come along. And they start getting hard hit, this Bureau and the Predator and Rodent Control. And they try to switch some things around, rename themselves into something that looks friendly. So now we have what is called, and it's the same division, but they changed the name to Wildlife Services. So Wildlife Services is underneath APHIS, Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. Okay, so Wildlife Services is a program intended to provide federal leadership and skill to resolve wildlife interactions that threaten public health and safety, as well as agricultural property and natural resources. And it used to be called like Rodent Control, Animal Damage Control, preceding agency was Animal Damage Control. They had to change the name. So if you look like at 20, this was the last time they had 2016 Wildlife... Services, animal takes. Okay, so we're seeing 2.7 million animals were killed by wildlife services in 2016 alone. And they do this every year, which you'll see in Fort Collins. They have that National Wildlife Research Center, and that's kind of where they concoct different poisons. And they also make different kind of vaccines, but they do a host of things that help aid wildlife services in the poisoning campaign across the states to continue to kill these they call them nuisance species like prairie dogs, coyotes. They poisoned fifty-eight thousand burrows alone in Colorado for black-tailed prairie dogs in 2016. A lot of what happens like with these divisions and their changing of the name and everything, they kill a lot of wolves. They killed blackbirds, and what they do it mostly through is poisons. So like to kill that, they killed three hundred and twenty-some thousand blackbirds in 2016, and we don't have 2017 statistics. They haven't put those out, but. um... They do that through just getting big, huge bait stations and open air bait stations so any bird can come and eat that and they'll die the same way. And they douse all those uh, grains in anticoagulants that kill the birds almost immediately. And their goal is to kill the red-winged blackbirds. Why? They're saying because they compete with cows, that they go into the feedlots and they steal their food. So they're protecting us so that we can have more food. You know, and underlying all that, when you start really looking into these poisoning campaigns, it has a lot to do with funding, just like any other government agent. You know, if you're getting there, they've always gotten funding to kill animals. That's what uh, wildlife services originally was when it was rodent and predator control. And then it was, you know, animal damages control. And then this this National Wildlife Research Center used to be called like a poisoning center, you know, learning it and it said it more clearly, but that's when the public was behind it. Then we see Rachel Carson and we see more people starting to think, you know what, predators and these keystone species, these rodents or whatever, are actually very essential in in holding life together in communities and having a healthy environment. And then they got pushback. So they, instead of stopping killing, they just changed the names so that people, you know, you hear wildlife services, what do you think? You hear Colorado Parks and Wildlife, what do you think? You think they're there protecting wildlife that their job, but they're really actually working to distribute poisons.
0: Can you take a step back and maybe elaborate on the impact that Rachel Carson's work has had? I think maybe in particular Silent Spring is what most people might be familiar with.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was a huge break in terms of the public understanding the importance and the the cascading effects of poison on our environment. So Rachel Carson's Silent Spring did a lot to open people's minds and to really start questioning and These things that really should be clear. I mean, we all know that poisons aren't isolated to one species and that they will cascade into the environment. And she made that very clear in all of our books through research and education and and proving that this was so. And, um, you know, so it opened people's concerns and people started thinking a lot more about that. And prior to Rachel Carson, I think people understood that it probably wasn't a really good thing to poison, but it wasn't put up on the stage and it wasn't really highlighted. Now what's happened since then is nothing. I mean, we there were certain things that were put into effect, you know, we cleaned up water, we got more environmentally concerned, you see the endangered species act, you see all these environmental protections coming along around that same time. Yet there more poison is being dumped into our environment today than ever before. I mean, rise of population is one reason industry dominating is another reason i mean we have fracking going on up and down the front range we have all these things happening but people don't really think about the effects of that poisoning on everybody else but it's enormous i mean it's it's enormous to think about who was here before colonization took place so you know you think about these 60 million buffalo that were on our our grasslands and you think about the 5 billion prairie dogs and you think about the great ox, where they have reports where somebody would shoot one shot up into the air and 10 birds would fall with one shot. Um, passenger pigeons, which used to fly over and they would darken the skies like a cloud for three days at a time. That's how big the flocks were. And they're extinct because we people kept killing them and thinking like they're a never-ending resource. You could never damage. There's so many of them, you could never actually kill them all. And, you know, within several years, they were gone, completely gone. So when you look at prairie dogs, the amazing thing about like prairie dogs and coyotes is that they're still here. Because the these animals are specifically targeted through poisons to annihilate them completely. There was no goal to save any of them. Now we talk different. And if you talk to land managers, they will all talk about the importance of prairie dogs and how they are a keystone species. Yet they still are killing them. But it's actually absolutely amazing how resilient these animals are because they continue to live. Um, You see them on railroad tracks. You see them in the medians when you're going to the airport. I mean, they're pretty tough critters considering how many people have tried to just eliminate them.
0: I think that's an interesting idea for uh, notion for most people is to talk about prairie dogs as a species that needs our attention or that might be endangered is really hard for people to wrap their minds around because they're everywhere.
1: What we need to be able to clarify, like you're saying, is that just because you see them doesn't mean that their populations are doing well at all. And these are the last tiny remnants of them. And it's very heartbreaking. They are, yes, they are very resilient. But if you drive through Parker on your way out of here, um, or probably in Fort Collins too, but you can really see it in Parker. If you go up and down Parker Road, every single lot that is vacant, that has a prairie dog colony on it, usually has a for sale sign and you can drive through several colonies and watch bulldozers actively running over them, just destroying their home. And you can see all the prairie dogs scared and sitting on their burrows and looking at the the bulldozers and the horror. It's very, very you, It's very obvious if you took time to look. And they're just being absolutely annihilated in all these little corners. So you're, the lots where you're seeing prairie dogs are the lots that have not been touched and are the last remnants just trying to hold on to their existence. And we say they're everywhere, but if you start paying attention, especially if you've lived in Colorado for a while, there's less and less all the time. And the little patches that you do see are just these very small remnants that are just trying to hold on to survival. And their biological integrity and everything too is very weakened. It's because biologically they're driven to leave the colony in June and July to find another colony so that they can get introduced and accepted into there so that they can spread genetic diversity into that population, and they do that. And now we're seeing less and less of that, and we're seeing more weakened colonies.
0: A lot of researchers and intellectuals are very convinced that we're in the middle of the sixth great extinction. Of, of all the animals to be concerned about their um, survival on planet Earth, why prairie dogs?
1: You know, I feel like all animals we should be concerned about— the reason why I've chose prairie dogs and think that they're extraordinarily important is because they are a keystone species of the prairies. And the only way to really have healthy prairies is to have uh, healthy is to have prairie dogs and to have them vibrant on the landscape. I do not in any way think that we should only focus on the prairie dogs. I think that they're a very visual indicator for us here in Colorado to really recognize and see with our eyes the, the visual landscape scale loss of a species that really plays an important role in our environment. So the the baseline problem of everything really is agriculture. I mean, and we even look at it today, the reason prairie dogs are hated, agriculture. The reason wolves are hated, agriculture. The reason buffalo are hated, agriculture. The reason any native species is hated is agriculture because the most important thing to this civilization is growth. And to have growth, you have to have a food supply to supply that growth, and you have to be able to extract and use, say, fossil fuels to continue to, to, to push the growth out. And so we see civilizations back in history, and every one of them that has risen up and has expanded their population beyond what the land can take crashes. And it's, it's just every single one. And this all happened 10,000 years ago. Now, prior to 10,000 years ago, in the, uh, in the record, the global archaeological record, there is no sign of any civilizations that came up. All people lived in traditional cultures which lived with the land base, and they didn't try to expand the population beyond what the land could support. It was just—and we had to listen to the land. We had to get our stories from the land. We had to base our mentality around what we—what the land would allow in terms of growth and and respect and love. And we saw those trees and the grasses and the prairie dogs and all the animals as our kin— And to kill them was a huge ceremonial effort of of giving and of, of gratitude and of trying to give back to the earth through ceremony, through care, through ensuring that that species would be able to continue into the future. And then you see agriculture. And then you see these civilizations that start. That's when we see the written word. So every civilization that starts growing crops starts writing. And then you start creating a population that's completely unsustainable in the long term because now you're starting to have to... You know, import resources because you've denuded your land base. So I mean, so Iraq in the Middle East used to be the cedar forest so thick that sunlight never touched the ground. And so what you see, like they say, with agriculture and civilization, you know, forests for, forests are before us, and and desert dogs are heels. So that's and that's kind of the whole pattern of it. Like our grasslands and everything that 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 holds up is that talk about a keystone species. I mean, <laughs> that is what ruminants and everybody depends on.
0: Do, do you think that some of this kind of just comes back to grasslands are not sexy?
1: I think it all comes down to grasslands need to be monocropped and we need to be able to make a profit off of them. Like with this forest, we're on, we are on—we have some land here and we're on for, a forest egg program. And we're, we're kind of on probation for it now because what they could require you is to kill the forest. You have to turn the forest into a product if you want to have a tax subsidy or a tax break on your land. So with ranchers and everybody, I mean, they are going out and doing, making their living and they're grazing their animals on public land for a pittance at our expense. But what's valued is that they're able to make a profit and they're able to turn the, the land into meat for people to eat or they're able to to use land in some way that's productive. And you can see it like with the Homestead Act in uh, America, in United States. Anybody could go, and that's how this land was originally sectioned out into the acreage that it is. You could go out and homestead land. They still can do that in Alaska and stuff. So if you, you can get hundred, 80-acre you know, um, segments of land at that time, and you, as long as you fence them all with barbed wire and turn the land into a product, crops, logs, wood, you know, or cattle range, then you are able to live on that land and call it your own. It was yours. So they started doing that with indigenous people too. They'd put them on the reservations. Then they'd start trying to get them, instead of communally owning the hundreds of acres, of the pittance of land that was given to them, they would try to section each person off into a plot so that they could farm it. So the Daw- You see something like the Dawes Act where they're sitting there and each family is allowed to have 80 acres or whatever it was as long as they farmed that land and turned it into a product. So then we come back to capitalism, but it all is based on the notion that we can have this story and this belief that we can grow beyond the measures of what the land would would ever be able to sustain. So now we're stuck in this global, this culture that we live in now, it's globalized. And when you see Easter Island and you see all the civilizations in the Roman, all these empires that have fallen and all the civilizations that have crashed and we can see it in the archaeological record and what happened, um, and you see that there's still plenty of space around them. Like the people, some people escaped those cultures and were able to go back to a traditional life. And we've created a, a place now where we're in, like you said, the sixth great extinction. And there's nowhere else to go. We have taken our planet, our only home, and we have got taken to the the life to such an advantage, and we have destroyed it to such an extent. That scientists are saying all over that we could possibly even render this planet into a Venus, meaning that we could extinguish life on the planet from the insanity of this fossil fuel party that we've been on in just the end game of this progress of civilization where we've been able to encapsulate the whole globe in the insanity of the idea that you can have infinite growth on a finite planet. Now, most people can understand that you cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet, but we sure don't. Behave that way. We're looking at the prairie dog colony that was relocated here from uh, Castle Rock. We're in Sedalia, and we're up in a mountain meadow area where there was plenty of grass land in a meadow, and it was the only place that we could find to put this prairie dog colony that was originally from the Promenade Mall in Castle Rock, where they uh, destroyed 166 acres of habitat that had a thriving prairie dog colony.
0: About how many, do, do you have any idea what the number of prairie dogs were before the mall was built?
1: There were thousands there. I'd say seven to eight thousand prairie dogs were out there.
0: And how many made it over here?
1: About four hundred altogether, three fifty to four hundred. Um, they already poisoned them, and then we ended up getting all the survivors of the poisoning.
0: So they poisoned some of these animals, and most of them died. Or how many? How many? What percentage of those animals died? Probably about eighty percent. So you had about three or four hundred. Yeah. Eighty percent of those died.
1: Probably, maybe 90% even. There was a lot that died. um, And then a lot of the prairie dogs that are up here died the first year too because they didn't make it. It was cold. We had a lot of snow. And so now we have probably 140 prairie dogs here.
0: How many survived before before they started breeding again?
1: We had maybe about 70 to 80.
0: And now about 140.
1: Yeah, and that's three years later.
0: Three years. About three years to double the population. Yeah. Yeah, is that is that about the normal reproductive rate for prairie dogs, or is that a challenge because of the altitude and where they're at?
1: It's about the normal reproductive rate. So prairie dogs have one. This is another fallacy that people don't understand. Prairie dogs have one litter of babies a year. They go into heat for a couple days. They go into estrus. Um, they can. Some people say it's even just a couple hours that they go into estrus where they can get pregnant. And they have one litter of between two and four prairie dogs, and at least half of those are predated.
0: So, okay, Um, then there's this incredible misnotion around animals that people think of as nuisance animals or or rodent animals, and pardon my language, that they just look like rabbits.
1: Yes, and that's completely not true of the prairie dogs as we see. I mean, they have one—so right now they're starting to get ready for um, babies— uh, for getting pregnant they're going to start going into estrus they usually do around uh, february um, and now they're getting their nest ready and they're getting everything kind of set up the the boys are starting to get a little frisky out there and they're going to start getting ready to breed and then the babies they'll have their babies around march and then the babies stay in their burrows for at least five weeks um, they're born without hair. Um, they're bald little cuties, and then they start growing their fur. And then they come out um, in about June, early June, late May, and then about, like I said, half of them get predated by the birds at least.
0: This idea that they have sex all the time and are just this crazy wild group—I mean, that's that's really that's that's a, that's not accurate at all. Not at all. So Not when they when they do get to this time of year and they start to get a little bit closer and a little bit more intimate, maybe put on a little bit of berry white, some al green. This is a special time. It's a, it's a it's a special special moment.
1: Yeah, it is. And you'll see the boys starting to fight. I mean just like with the elk and the deer and everybody else. I mean, you'll see the boys starting to fight each other. Um sometimes you'll see the the battle wounds of, sc- of fights and you can start seeing them rolling around and they you know on their colony and fighting. Um and, you know, It it is a very special time for them, and they work—they do a lot of preparation, too, in terms of their babies. I mean, they have a lot of work that they have to do in terms of getting their nest ready, and, you know, not all of the girls get pregnant. Not all of the girls have babies, so—and there's always boys vying for the girl, and they're fighting each other and figuring out who's going to be the best fit for the girls, so— You know, yeah, and it happens one. and it really—some people say it's only two hours that they go into estrus, each of the females, and some people say it's a couple days.
0: So it's like last call at the bar one night of the year.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you'll see the the males competing for a month. For a month? Yeah, the males will compete with each other, and they'll kind of establish the hierarchy of which girl that that might entertain their— their their fancies, you know. Oh, oh man. So they've Who, got really who's got time for that? Up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right, well, let's check out this burrow okay. got over here. Okay. Um, but these guys have found and have had a couple litters, and they have a quite a nice little family over here. There's one running up there. Oh, they just popped down. But see, they've made all these little burrows here. They like it here. Oh, yeah. um, here's a burrow. They have burrows. For some reason, they like to put them right under the fences.
0: Is it possible for ranchers and for farmers growing crops to live in harmony with prairie dogs, or is it better for them to have their own areas like this?
1: Uh, it's definitely possible for them to live in harmony. And they are doing some programs where they're trying to reintroduce the black-footed ferret. And so they have um, incentives from the government where they'll get a certain amount of money per acre per, for the ranchers who allow the introduction of the black-footed ferret and don't kill their prairie dogs. Um, So we see some of that happening in Mexico. And I forget the person's name. I can look it up for you later if you want to look into some of his work. He's done huge hundreds. He has tens of thousands of acres of cattle ranches, cattle um, grazing ranches in concert with the prairie dogs. And he's done a lot of research on that and has found that it's only benefited both the prairie dogs and the cattle ranchers and that that's really you know a great uh, combination and that they benefit each other in terms of the soil health and the plant health and the cattle's health um and and i think that ranch is over ten thousand acres or something and they've done that ted turner does a lot of work with uh, prairie dogs and keeping them on his ranches along with his buffalo Um, and he very much appreciates the role and he thinks that they are a great combination and they've done lots of research showing that they are beneficial to each other and that they can definitely coexist and should coexist. And the reason why cattle ranchers hated prairie dogs is they felt uh, unsubstantiatedly felt so that they would compete with the grass for their cows. So if there was a lot of prairie dogs there, their cows wouldn't be getting as much food as they wanted them to do. So that was one reason why, you know, the war on the prairie dogs. But as we're seeing with the work that the gentleman's doing in Mexico and other people, Ted Turner and that, that the grass, even though it's shorter around the burrows, the cattle, the horses, and the... The buffalo prefer that grass because it's so much more nutrient-rich and it tastes a lot sweeter. So lots of times the pe- everybody knows it has horses. Their horses always prefer a certain area of grass like on their land because it's sweet. And they keep it really cut short there because they like to eat it as it comes up. It's sweeter as it's coming up. So the same thing with the prairie dogs. I mean, that, of course, the buffalo is not like, oh, look, this has more minerals. But they're saying, yum, this tastes better than that grass over there that's not that has not been trimmed. I blame a lot of the myth-making. And just the whole storyline that we have as colonizers, that the whole idea and, and all of us need to take a step back. I mean, let we can look right here at these burrows here and we can look over here and, and see the burrows that go under the fence. We don't have horses anymore, but we did for the first two years these prairie dogs were here. They were 35 years old, so the, the horses naturally died. They didn't step in a hole. We need to start using our imagination and start thinking about you know, how these burrows are actually beautiful and quite a wonder when you think about the time and the work and the ingenuity that has actually gone into creating these homes and the ecological benefits that they actually do have that cascade through. And it's the mindset and the story that we have that is destructive and has destroyed the reputation, if you want to use that word, of prairie dogs, of wolves, of all the native species. And it's that underlying idea that everything here was created for our use and for our benefit, and that we have dominion over the earth, that we, have do- that we can dominate everything, and that these trees grow for me to cut. You know, they, they grow so that I can profit off them. Those prairie dogs are here for me to kill so that I can put my cattle here. You know, the wolves are—that that nothing has meaning besides my profit line and my idea of what I want things to look like and how I want things to be. And that's, that's the story that, that is going to be the end of us. And we're seeing the effects of that, whether we want to open our eyes to it and acknowledge it, but we're seeing the effects of our story. All cultures have a story. The story that we are the only ones and that humans reign supreme is a disastrous one. And that's that's the problem. And for prairie dogs specifically, yes. I mean, just the whole labeling of destructive rodent pest and dirty little rodents has been extraordinarily probably the most powerful tool that the agricultural industry has used in support of destroying this this keystone species I guess like in this country we can hide our eyes from it like we don't have to see the rising um, the rising oceans we're not like in cact but but people in Alaska and people on these Island communities are seeing what's happening to themselves. You know, they're seeing that they're being displaced and they can't live on their islands anymore. And certainly the animals that are going extinct every day are feeling the brunt of that attitude. And if we look at it and if we pull our heads out of our screens and we think about what's happening in Colorado alone and we look at this massive development and even just think for a moment that maybe there's not enough water to continue to keep this going. Even most politicians and builders and stuff understand the water crisis that we're just about to run into. I mean, are people going to ever realize it? It's, to me, it's just insane. it's a, it's amazing that people aren't aren't realizing it right now because I feel like we're in the middle of it. But we're so distracted by our toys that we don't take time to really sit there and think about it. And at this point, too, it's like if we don't realize what's going on now, you know, I mean, it's it's we're just going to keep walking into that. We're zombies. It's like we're the walking dead how we all love our games. I mean, you get millions and millions of people showing up to celebrate the Denver Broncos winning the Super Bowl. They crowd the streets, you close them down, and then you try to get people involved in, like, a protest over destroying land or fracking or whatever, and you may get 20 if you're lucky. I mean, it's this whole idea of entertainment, you know, entertainment, and we're going to just keep going down in entertainment, and that's how civilizations collapse. Did Easter Islanders realize as they were building their statues that, that it was over? Did they change their way at that point or was it too late? And once it was too late, did they say, damn, we should have done things differently? I mean, and that's the sad thing now, too, is like people who care need to stand up and resist just out of responsibility and do whatever we can to save what we can. And does that mean we're going to and that anybody's going to wake up? No. But also, I mean, I value like to me, it's like we're here like we were given a gift from life and we owe life. We owe life something. I mean, this is a miracle. It's just amazing. And it always just blows my mind that we could destroy such a miracle. I mean, one in trillions and trillions of chances to be alive, to be a molecule created into this. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And then the fact that we could have been here millions of more years if we didn't decide that we were the number one apex species.
0: Deanna, where can people find you and the work you're doing and get involved, or maybe just find more information?
1: We're on uh, Facebook. For You can just look up Prairie Protection Colorado. We also have a website, prairieprotectioncolorado.org. Uh, you can also email us at prairieprotectioncolorado at gmail.com. When people, usually when people come up against prairie dogs, it's so ignorant. Let me just say a couple things. Almost all the time in comments against prairie dogs, people don't spell anything correct they say all these things that are not true and it's really obvious from the outside that that the, the this is stemming from an in, vast ignorance i mean it's it really is coming from just not knowing and from hating i mean as we see with any any type of group we hate I read a book on uh, California genocide um, and that was the indigenous people and they were calling all of the native people that they were slaughtering in the 1800s vermin they were calling them disease they were calling them all these other exact same things that they call the prairie dogs and that they call anything that they want to get rid of and it really is based on you know that assumption like if you can convince anybody that in absurdities then you will get you can get them to commit atrocities and that's really that line was tear. And I could totally see that everywhere. I mean, if we can justify what we're doing by demonizing those who were doing it too, then we will hold on to those demonizations just to be able to clear our conscience and to be able to continue doing those things. And I would ask anybody who really does, it's very difficult when you're dealing with a hate group. And that goes for people who hate immigrants or who hate any certain group of people or who hate any animal. It's the same thing. It is extraordinarily hard to change the mind of somebody who hates. And and really the the the, the demonizing of prairie dogs, the laughing it off like it's a stupid thing, it comes from not being able to open the mind to what is really happening on this planet and why those things are occurring and being able to just educate yourself. Because if people really would just go out and say like the things that we hear the most when we get these people that don't like prairie dogs is of course the plague thing and destructive, dirty, rodent pest. I mean, I would encourage everybody to research that The people who hate them probably never will. And if they do, they're not going to like what they find. But the people who are in between the fence, to just really think about these claims. Like, what do they really carry the plague? You know, and look it up. Look at the Center for Disease Control and what they have to say. And look at how many people get plague. And look at the statistics. And then come back and really ask yourself, is this what we should seriously be worried about in our world today? And is this even factual? Same thing with the animals breaking the leg and all of this. Um, And I just hope that one day... I don't think we're ever going to change the people that hate them. Um, I've tried, and it ends up being frustrating, and it ends up being hate on both sides. And so those aren't the people I'm concerned about reaching. I'm concerned about reaching the people who are in between, who have heard the hateful stuff, but who are smart enough and willing enough to explore those assumptions and to really look into why those have come about historically and you know, in policy. For one thing, prairie dogs are the health of our grasslands, and are especially our short grasslands. And grasslands are key into storing carbon, into keeping groundwater alive and there, um, into supporting a myriad of other species, and into keeping our soil available and to have a breathable planet. Um, without prairie dogs, just symbolize like what happens when you lose this intricate community of life. Um, including the grasslands, and, and, and more than ever now, we need to try to restore our grasslands. We need to try to get the circle, the community of life to rejoin and restore and rebuild the damage that has been been created. And what do humans need to make that happen? We need to stand back and stop controlling these these very important species and to start realizing that, you know what, Life isn't just me. Life is my life. We all die. But life on this planet is a miracle beyond anybody's comprehension. And in this area in the West, if you want to care about something and that's visually there and that needs our protection and that needs our advocacy, prairie dogs are the ones to do it because you can see it, like you said, on every corner. You can see you might see them, but you guaranteed can go watch them being killed right now anywhere in the state. Um the last of them, the small colonies that remain, are under attack. And, you know, I, that, that's the best way I can say it. it's like the, the importance of a community and what prairie dogs symbolize in terms of how many different cascading, you know, effects it has to take that key, – key, any keystone species out of the environment. We see it with wolves. We see it with beavers. When you take those out, you watch everything else plummet and, and cease to thrive, and that's, that's what we're seeing. I mean, where you see prey dogs, you will see hawks. You will see owls. You will see coyotes. And a lot of people don't want to see the coyotes, but I think most people value eagles and hawks and raptors, and they like those. They love owls. But they have to understand that when you pull a thread out of the tapestry of a community that is integral to the survival and the, the, the strength of it, that you're also destroying those owls and those birds and all the other community of life that you might appreciate. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing with what needs to happen in Colorado to protect prairie dogs, first and foremost would be to to get rid of this whole labeling of them being a destructive uh, rodent pest and a nuisance species. And they speak out because they also call them a keystone species, but they're known in law. As a destructive rodent pest, and if you look at some of our laws, they're pretty appalling. Like they say that the state even has a right to go on private property of people who don't want their prairie, who don't mind their prairie dogs, or would like them to be there, and to kill them. That the police can come in and do that um, if they're affecting anybody's crops on, on any side of the land or whatever, and they use the terminology consistently through it as a destructive nuisance rodent pest. Um, So that that would be important to get people to know just what I'm talking to you about. Because I think a lot of – there are people, ranchers, the agricultural industry, who has a huge power in our Congress throughout the entire country. They always have. Farmers and ranchers have a huge pull on Congress and and the politics within. Um, But people – so they hate prairie dogs pretty much. You're not going to be able to talk to somebody. They're going to be very heated and just they're disgusting and blah, blah, blah. But most people – are in the middle to where they've heard so that they're plague-carrying dirty rodents, that they're just gross rats. They're rats. They're like rats, and, and no, no offense to rats either because that's misinformation as well, but prairie dogs are a keystone species of the prairies. And if people started getting more educated about that and we started putting more programs to educate the public, I think much more people would be inclined to appreciate and like prairie dogs than there would be people to hate them. Um, So that that's an important thing of the education. And then another thing is this Colorado Parks and Wildlife and their their restraints on restraints and their the difficult process that they make advocates go through to relocate prairie dogs would just about infuriate anyone.
0: That's awesome. I'm just so pleasantly surprised with how this went. Meeting you has been so fantastic and you were so well spoken. And I just wish way more people have—I really hope a lot of people have a chance to hear this story. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. I sure appreciate it. I appreciate you doing this story always.
0: Dana Meyer, Prairie Protection, Colorado. Thank you very much. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks again for coming along with me to Living on a Prairie. The story about the black tailed prairie dog and Deanna Meyer at Prairie Protection Colorado. This has been the Eyes on Conservation podcast. My name is Gregory Haddock. I'd love to hear more about what you thought about this story or any other stories that I've done. Please shoot me an email, gregory.haddock at gmail.com. I'd be happy to get back to you and hear more about what you had in mind. Always interested in growing and finding out how to tell those stories just a little bit better. You can find out more about the show on the show notes page at wildlensinc.org backslash EOC169. Show music is brought to you by the Humidors with additional music provided by the Free Music Archive via Creative Commons licensing.